0: Place, place, place. You might say the moonstone itself is the spirit of place. It is there and it is not there. It's gone missing. Who's taken it? Who is guilty of this outrageous theft? Who is under... Suspicion? That is the only question. It would seem at some point that everyone is under suspicion. A reading life, a writing life with writer and teacher Sally Bailey. There is a mournful lady singing on my boat. I shall imagine that is the sound of the moon. The moon, she is my mother, says the poet Sylvia Plath, or her speaker. The moon is my mother. But there is no moon tonight. The cloud is a thick, dark blanket. No moon. The moon is on sabbatical. She does not come out on a Monday night. It's her night off. The moon, always feminized, always a woman. Diana, Diana, goddess of the hunt, and the moon. There's something comforting about reading in parts or sections which is why I want to deliver my book, my new book, which is a very short book, really. It's only a scandalous 45,000 words, I think, which is the length of a novella or a short novel. But I still want to deliver it in parts. It's arranged thus. Four parts, I believe. As my last book was, there's something very solidifying about having a set of parts and when I feel stressed or anxious I like to read in short units which is why poems are very convenient. But also to go back to the Victorians I'm now teaching this week a course on British detective fiction and one of the novels we're looking at is The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins published in 1868 it's perhaps the first work of fiction which we can call in English at least a detective novel and the reason I like it is because it's a rambling mess of a thing constructed from several different narratives all competing for attention and all undoing one another in some sense. And all you really need to know in order to understand the world of Wilkie Collins's detective novel, The Moonstone, is that there is a very large diamond that's gone missing. The main narrative comes from the steward of the house called Gabriel Betteridge. And I should say that it takes place in a rather remote country house in Yorkshire. We don't have a great deal of knowledge about the place, not the actual location, but the house itself takes over. And much of the action seems to take place around doors and windows, as happens in many a Gothic novel. And I think that's why I like it. I grew up in a house where doors and windows never properly closed because the latches were broken or the door handles were broken or someone had kicked the door too hard and the stopper no longer worked. And The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, which I did not read as a child, I read as an adult, is a bit like a broken down house with lots of draughts and broken windows and faulty doors and rusty hinges. And I'm just now looking at what is called the first narrative of the second part. And it's almost as though someone has just given me a whole bundle of papers and said, well, that's the end of that part. Here's the beginning of this part. And this part is told by a character called Miss Clack. C-L-A-C-K. Miss Clack. And it soon becomes quite clear that Miss Clack is... The kind of person we're supposed to feel sorry for. She's rather pious. But at the same time, she elicits pity from us because she's rather a bore. She's a religious bore. She's a moral bore. B-O-R-E. She keeps a diary. And that is how we come to know of her narrative in this ramshackle piece of storytelling which has become known as the first work of detective fiction by Mr. Wilkie Collins, who was a close associate and friend, colleague you might say, in writing with Charles Dickens. The Moonstone is called a sensational novel a sensational novel, meaning that it explores feeling, heightened feeling, events that provoke heightened feeling. And so the language of emotion runs all the way through it. I think another reason why I find it very comforting, apart from the fact it reminds me of a first draft of a novel or the first draft of a written account of a series of events you might call a novel, is because it's overrun with rather implausibly felt, rather over-the-top, boiling-over emotions. Everything is a bit too, too much. And this week, I've been feeling a bit too, too much. I haven't been feeling at all professional. Certainly not like a professional writer. No, not at all. And I return to the Victorian period because that period of writing favoured small parts, serialisation, a series of parts which tacked together became a longer work of art, a novel or a play. And I think I like Wilkie Collins because you can almost see the stitches, the rather crude, poorly formed stitches, to go back to the language of the seamstress. My mother was a seamstress and I believe that I learned to write by watching her sew and understanding that parts of a sleeve or a cuff, C-U-F-F, or a leg or a limb, the body as it was to be clothed by fabric was also made up of a series of parts and you needed the measurements. We needed the accurate measurements to cover the body in question. Cuff, the word cuff, the word collar, the word seam, S-E-A-M, the word hem. This was the language of my childhood, and it was the putting together of a series of parts. And if you got those parts right, then you would have something like a coat or a blouse or a skirt or a jumper or a pair of trousers or a pair of shorts or a dress which might fit. And there's something about the world of fabric and clothing which is all over this particular novel, The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins, which is not afraid of showing its partiness, its sections, its thrown togetherness, its seams, S-E-A-M-S, and the breaks in the seams, and the line of the hems, which I find comforting. Nothing is perfectly sealed off. There's always another narrative part, which is about to interrupt. Another part, a bit like Voices overlapping, poly vocal, you might call it. Many voices interrupting, speaking all at once, hustling and bustling and trying to find a place for themselves, trying to become the protagonist who discovers the truth. And I'm interested in the variegation of truth, the variable nature of truth. Truth is always variegated like the colours of leaves in the autumn, you say there's a red leaf and you pick it up and turn it to the light and it isn't red, it's russet orange, it's brown, it's yellow, it's turning green around the edges, where the light hasn't yet got it, the sunlight that is. So yes, the truth is always variegated and various, depending upon who you ask. and my book, The Green Lady, follows that principle. And so there are various characters playing various parts. And I think each of them is competing to be the protagonist, to be what my mother so often accused me of being, the Bolshe one, the Bolshe one. My mother used to love that word, Bolshe, B-O-L-S-H-I-E, I often used to misspell it, and spell it with a Y, like my name, Bolshe Sally. You have to have a bit of Bolsh about you to be a narrator. You have to have a voice that we can hear. You have to be able to assert yourself. And indeed, one of my students was explaining, very intelligently this week, that one of the characters in The Moonstone, really all that he does is offer a series of assertions. I think that was Sergeant Cuff who appears on the scene as our detective at one point. Sergeant Cuff loves to assert things, as do other characters in the Moonstone. The subjective and the objective point of view. These are terms that are thrown around by various characters asserting their truth. So every now and then, in my own writing, I practise a form of assertion. It's almost like (coughs) clearing my throat, coughing out the words, clearing out the pipes. I am haunted by the idea of becoming old. And I am haunted by old ladies, those who raised me, now forgotten and discarded. And I am haunted by myself because all writers, once they start reporting on life, turn into ghosts, gasping spirits, breathing in good and bad thoughts, fear, wonder and amazement. A writer's notebook is full of the sound of atmosphere. Lungs. Lungs. Sucking up the air. Atmosphere. Atmosphere. That's what I I want to capture atmosphere, the sound of my own fear as I write, because a writer is always afraid that what she writes won't be good enough, simply won't be good enough. And so she presses forth through the atmosphere, which is the sound ...of her own fear. And I have just alighted upon the narrative of Miss Clack. All you really need to know about Miss Clack... ...is that she's the niece... ...the niece... ...of the late Sir John Verinder. V-E-R-I-N-D-E-R. And it's the Verinder House in which the theft of the jewel called the Moonstone occurs. And Miss Clack is one of the hanger-ons, if you like, of the realm of the family. She is a spinster and she is rather pious and fond of her Christian hymns. And she reminds me a great deal of one of the characters in my book, The Green Lady, And her name is Miss Cull, C-U-L-L, Cull. As in, I think we'll have a bit of a cull of this set of drawers. I want to get rid of a few things. Let's have a cull, a getting rid of, a not wanting any more. Poor Miss Cull. Poor, poor Miss Cull. We'll come to her shortly. She's a relative of Miss Clack. -clack 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 Clackety-clack-clack-clack-clack-clack-clack-clack-clack. A relative of Miss Clack. From Wilkie Collins, the Moonstone. Because once you've met a character, they start to remind you of someone else. You already know. That's what reading does. That's what reading does. It gives you so many genealogies, so many genes, so many types, so many relatives. Miss Cull without doubt is related to another type Miss Clack. So Mavis has just come in to tell me a tale. She was out with her mother and they came across two very scaredy-cat teenagers, she said, clutching hands in the dark. And these two teenagers asked Mavis and her mother Would you be able to walk us home in the dark? Because we're terribly scared. And so Mavis and her mother followed the teenagers down the towpath into a place of light, the bus stop. Mavis thought this terribly funny, and I think it very strange. So what I've decided to do is to come out in the dark myself. Am I scared? No. Is there anything to be afraid of in the dark? No. Are there any wild things out to get me? No. Only this tree. That, that. I think in the dark, I can say that is the foxglove tree. His branches are hanging low and tender but everything feels very succulent even though it is October and really I should be wrapped up inside with a fire on but it must be about 14 degrees out here I'd say. I'm walking rather gingerly through the dark not because I'm scared of course but because I'm trying to pay attention to the outline of the tree in front of me. I think nature must be very confused. It being so warm. This being October and all. This being the autumn or the fall, as they say in the United States of America. It's the best thing about America. Don't tell them that. The beautiful colors in the autumn So my friend Paul has already rung this morning. My friend Paul, I call him Boating Paul. There's the kettle. Boating Paul has rung. Boating Paul is in a bit of a pickle. He often is. He's bought another boat as a project. His boat is called Benevolence. But I'm not sure it's actually behaving benevolently at the moment. Meanwhile, I've woken up this morning worrying about the fact that I went pottering around in the dark last night, hoping to record the screech owls, but the screech owls were having a night off. It being Monday and all, today is Tuesday, and I've lost a tiny part of my audio equipment. Don't tell Andrew, don't tell Andrew Smith. Let's see, I'm going outside now, up over the step, onto the boardwalk, Cling clang. There's my water tank lid to go. I'm going to see if I can find, I mean, it's really a hopeless mission I'm on, a tiny piece of plastic in the long, wet grass. Chances of that, I'd say very slight, wouldn't you? It's beautiful morning. Beautiful morning. One of my favourite things to do is come out with no shoes on and walk around in the long, wet evaporating what do we call that dawn mist no I suppose it's a sort of light frost I don't feel the temperature in the same way dew that's it D E W the dew it's very beautiful in the morning one of the strange things of this condition I'm living with whatever it is whatever we want to call it one of my friends has a little dance. She does whenever we mention it. She looks like a rapper, wrapping out the condition. Have to laugh at these things. So I'm parading about with my condition through the long, wet, dewy grass towards the tree I was interviewing last night, which is not the foxglove tree. I was wrong, I couldn't see it in the dark. No, this is not a foxglove. Not at all. I need to decide what it is. Determine. I need to look it up. That's what I need to do. Not just decide. I need to look it up. I will pull one of the leaves. Wet springy leaf. Wet springy leaf. Very wet. I will take that back with me and decide what it is having looked up the shape of the leaf. That's what you're supposed to do after all. Black plastic, tiny little door. It's a little tiny plastic door to my data card. Data card. What words we use these days, data card. I mean, really, data card. I'm opposed to data. I don't know about you. Idea of data does not thrill me. It seems that's all we care about these days. Gathering data. To what end, I wonder? To what end? Here's the dewy grass, meanwhile. Very wet and long. What's the difference between dew and frost? I suppose dew comes in the warmer months, and frost comes when it starts to turn cold, which it has not yet, it most certainly has not. The Himalayan balsam flower is still out, which I know is a much loathed plant. It takes over everywhere, pernicious, pernicious, pernicious. But I rather like it, and the bees also love it, and it's nestled up next to my boat windows and I watch the bees sup to use a verb Emily Dickinson loved sup nectar from their cup sup nectar from her cups the Himalayan balsam flower we say Himalayan but actually it's not correct Himalayan far more beautiful Himalayan. I've never been to the Himalayas. Have you? So now I'm back on the boardwalk and of course I haven't found my little black plastic door. That was always going to be a futile effort. I shall put Maeve onto the job, aka Watson, to my Sherlock later when she's back from school. There will be a reward Maeve, there will be a reward there will be a reward back inside the boat I go down my step wipe my feet on the mat not very effective but never mind and now it's time for tea now it's time for tea place place You might say the moonstone itself is the spirit of place. It is there and it is not there. It's gone missing. Who's taken it? Who is guilty of this outrageous theft? Who is under suspicion? That is the only question. It would seem, at some point, that everyone is. And when I teach Wilkie Collins, and when I read Wilkie Collins, I am astonished at the way in which every character becomes a writer, and every character becomes a detective and a reporter. And I see all those bundles of papers which poor Detective Cuff has to carry around with him. Where does he keep those papers? How does he hold them all together? With string and glue? Does he carry a case or a folder? And then I think again of all my characters in The Green Lady. They're all writers too. They're all writers too. Even Mrs. Fortescue, who's terribly lonely, living in her big manor house on the corner of a large drive. Mrs. Fortescue, married to the major. Mrs. Fortescue, who's writing a letter to her sister, because it makes her feel better, her letter. Write it down, Mrs. Fortescue, write it down. Then something will happen. Your weeds will grow at least. Your Forsythia bush. Soon she will need clipping. Clip, clip, clip. In English villages. In English villages there is always an old lady clipping back a bush, waiting for something to come out of hiding. Such old blooms, did you see? Very established. Those old blooms been there for years. No, I say no, I was only passing. I didn't look. I only looked at the lions. There are lions outside Mrs Fortescue's house. They are very grand stone lions and I used to pet and pat them when I was a child. And I imagined they growled at me, those lions. I imagined they spoke to me because everything speaks back in the end. I thought that if I pressed down on that stone nose, that mane, I could make them talk. Talk? Because writers want their characters to speak. They want them to speak back. Mrs. Fortescue, what are you saying in your letter to your sister? What are you saying to your sister who is called Gladys? Gladys, like the flower. A royal warrior, a fighter, Gladiolus, Gladiolus, Gladys, 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 who will come out of hiding and take her sister out. It's human nature to conceal though, because the truth hurts, but we all want some of it, don't we? We all want some of that truth. Bitter, bitter truth, salty sweet. Bitter truth, salty sweet. Truth, we want to gorge upon it until our lips sting and our eyes pop open. The truth, the truth, there she is. Verity, Verity. Verity. All my life I have been looking for Verity. But she is buried, Verity. She is buried at the bottom of the garden in the Agatha Christie story I read when I was eight or nine or ten. Verity is buried. Under a plot of soil beneath the ground and her body is covered in pink polygonum flowers. But we want our mystery. We all want our bit of mystery. We all want to see the body of Verity lying out. There, there she is under the pink polygonum flowers. Pull her out, pull her out. We want our mystery. We want our Verity. We want our novel and i have written a novel i have written a novel it is a novel of sorts of sorts it is called the green lady it is a novel of sorts it is a novel way of writing i like to think a kind of biographical mystery mystery how many have you taken out I have taken out three this week from the library, from the library, and you may well ask, what is happening? What is happening in the mystery we call life? What is happening now? What is happening now? What on earth is going on here? We ask Verity. But we cannot ask Verity because she is buried beneath the ground. And you, you are the writer after all. And now, someone Is knocking at the door. And you, you must tell the policeman what it was that happened. Thank you for listening to A Reading Life, A Writing Life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like it, give us a review, or mention us to friends or on social media. Thank you.